Let's pray. Holy God, we are grateful for this day and grateful for the time that you've given us. We ask that you would guide us during the time which lies ahead. Let your spirit be with us and help us to learn from one another through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Okay, so we have reached congratulations, everybody. You have made it to the final week of reading Romans backwards. I think that deserves a round of applause. Woo woo. Way to go, everybody. There will be no Sunday school next week. And then when we resume after that, Tasha will be taking this, this segment of time uh, through Pentecost. And then uh, what's going to happen in the summer? We don't know because we haven't planned it yet. So if you have recommendations, uh, you can give them to us, but keep your expectations low that we will uh, hear those. So uh, we've reached the end, as I mentioned. Uh, so we're going to go through the last chapter, which is not particularly long. Um, and then, although I've managed to stretch it out for eight slides, uh, no applause for that, I notice. Um, so then uh, that'll give us some time to go ahead and, um, and do a little bit of like review and application which uh, may or may not be useful to us. So with that in mind, let's open up our PowerPoint for the week. And we will get underway after I move you guys to the top. My mouse is being weird again. Here we go. Okay, so reading Romans backwards, March 28th. Did you ever think you'd make it? No, you didn't. Yet here we are. And reading Romans backwards leads us to Romans chapter seven. <laughs> so really the book should have been like, really called reading Romans backwards, then forwards, then the middle. Should have been the title. Uh, but that was not the title. I think he's decided for simplicity's sake, it would be reading Romans backwards. So let's review last week. The gift of God in Christ to the rescue. There are three ways that the gift of God in Christ rescues us. First, this gift is an act of God. God did not withhold his son, but gave him up for all of us. Jesus's death atones by way of his identification or incorporation, including the ideas of sacrifice and substitution. His resurrection snaps the powers of sin, the flesh, and death, and it ushers in new creation life and thereby regenerates the death-directed sinner from death to life. Thus, Jesus' death and resurrection rescue the human from their former condition. So, if you've heard the sermon today, uh, and if you haven't, uh, spoiler alert, I mean, this is the idea that I'm getting at with, with rethinking what we mean when we say save us, right? So, um, we get this idea Remember, too, when McKnight capitalizes things like sin, flesh, and death, he's embodying those ideas. So he's not necessarily calling them Satan, but he's embodying, embodying them as things, like they are things. Um, and so Jesus snaps the power of those, those things in our lives and in our world. His death and resurrection rescue us from our former condition. And our former condition, remember, was alienation from God and being slaves to sin. That's our former condition. Second, in 834, Paul says, it is Christ Jesus who died, yes, and who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Christ died for us, Christ, Christ 
was raised for us. And because raised entails the ascension to the right hand of God, Christ now intercedes for us. Everything has been in the past, in the present, and in the future by Christ alone. This gets back to the idea of the permanence of Jesus. He, was, he has been there from the beginning. This is boilerplate Trinitarian theology that Jesus uh, exists, coexists with God the Father. There's no separation there. Then the third way that the gift helps us out is, oops, it's going backward. There we go. We must notice that Romans 8, 4 reveals with unmistakable clarity the point of redemption so that the just requirement of the law, the Torah, might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Redemption is key part. I highlighted it last week and I left it highlighted this week. Redemption is not so humans can go to heaven when they die, but so they can be transformed by God's grace into Christoformity. And that means they become people who choose not their own way, but the way of loving God and loving others. So this very much reiterates the idea that salvation has a real now component. It's not just about something that happens to us in the future. It's about something that we embody today in our lives. So this idea of transformation, God's grace should change us uh, in some fundamental way way. Um, okay, any questions or comments about those before we, we keep going through the review real quickly? You're like, well, this just sounds like what you explained last week, and I totally got it then, so I don't really need the review. Okay, I'm going to take that as a yes. Okay, so then this is the way that Paul describes the gift in Romans. I'm not going to read through these again, but I just wanted to show you this list uh, one more time so that we could uh, just refresh ourselves on the language Paul uses around Jesus and the work Jesus does. It's a significant list. Again, these are all uh, phrases and images lifted directly from Romans. So the idea of the gift is complica complicated and complex and rich. It's not something that can be easily distilled. Human participation in the gift. Again, this is from last week. Uh, faith, love, hope, and baptism are the ways in which we participate in the gift that is Jesus. Faith, which is trust in Christ. Love, which reciprocates in gratitude God's own love in our lives. Hope, which is a confidence and assuredness, even certitude at times. Um, and propels us to live in light of what we hope for. Baptism, which puts to death sin and the body of sin. Again, with hope, you see that idea of putting into practice what we believe. Uh, you know, McKnight really hammers on this idea of Christoformity, which is lived theology. We live out our beliefs. Um, if what you hope for is a peaceful world built on love, then the way in which you live should be peaceful and loving. It seems pretty straightforward, um, but there is that dissonance that happens with Christians where we hope for a world that is peaceful and loving, and in order to get there, we're going to be angry <laughs> and, and aggressive, right? So that, that's not what uh, he's talking about here. The future in Christ, what is now is not what will be. 
In our passage, the final cosmic liberation will happen only when history reaches its goal in the new heavens and new earth. Christ was raised, Paul says, so we will then be raised, or we will then experience the redemption of our bodies. Thus, the last word for Paul is life. So life triumphs over death, and that triumph is rooted in the sacrificial work of Jesus. So, pause for just a moment, and we can all look at each other, if I can get there. Phil, are we supposed to be hearing you? I seem to have lost audio. you're muted. There, better? Yes. I'm sorry. Yes, you were muted that whole time. Uh, you didn't miss anything. <laughs> I was just setting this up. We get to our last pronoun. It's I. Um, so uh, we did we and you. McKnight's going to put together a hypothesis here for who the I is that Paul is writing about. Every other commentator that I've ever read assumes that Paul is referring to himself. McKnight does something different. So I'm not going to tell you that McKnight's interpretation is correct, but it's at least interesting. So, I mean, you know, we'll see. All right, who is the I? We need to consider the rhetorical device called speech and character, or in Greek, prosopopopeia. Yeah, if we think of this text through speech and character, Romans 7 is not Paul's personal experience so much as a character, the judge of the weak, whose view Paul wants to sketch before his readers. The I passage then becomes Paul's fullest argument against the need of the Torah for Gentile converts. He shows that Gentiles who try to observe the Torah will not find the path to Christoformity, and it all begins with Romans 7. So McKnight's hypothesis is this. Paul is writing in character here with his use of the pronoun I, and the character he's writing in is the judge from back in verse 2. Remember, the judge is the one who's sitting in judgment over the Gentiles and those who do not incorporate the Torah 
into their life. So Paul is saying, if I lived this way, if I thought this way, this, these are the logical consequences of my worldview. So McKnight's hypothesis is that he's writing as a character, and that character, if you remember from earlier conversations, who keeps coming up, is the judge. And the judge is a Jewish convert to Christianity who believes that Torah law is still the way to salvation. You got it? Eh? Kind of? A little bit? So McKnight does cite the Greek rhetorical technique that Paul might be using here. There's the name of it. I said it once out loud. I'm not saying it again. Uh, prosopopeia. There, I said it again uh, because I knew you were judging me. So let's keep going. So here's Romans 7 to, 7 to 25. We're going to read this slowly. It's two slides. There's going to be stuff that's confusing. It's okay. What then would, she, would should we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if, if it had not been the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin seizing an opportunity in the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity in the commandment, deceived me and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. Did what is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin working death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into slavery under sin. I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. But in fact, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I can't do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that, that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of good and God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members." Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I am a slave to the law of God, but with my flesh, I am a slave to the law of sin. Thus endeth Romans 7 to 7 to 25. Everybody got it? Mm. <laughs> Great. Where does the catechism enter into this? Well, so catechism, right? Like, well, say more about your question so I know what you mean, Eleanor. What, what do you mean? How does it enter in? In well, what way? It, you know, sin is anyone conformity unto the transgression of the law of mm -hmm. God. And, I don't know, that seems to kind of 
counteract. Oh yeah, yeah. So uh, was that from Westminster Confession, or was it from the large? What which catechism is it from? Do you know? What I learned as a kid. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it could be any of those um, because I didn't learn them, so I don't know which one it's from. Say it again. Sin is anyone a conformity unto the transgression of the law of God. So sin is anything that doesn't conform to the law of God? Is that... That's just what I learned. Yeah. So there's a lot, as you probably have noticed at this point, there's a lot of what we would call doctrinal Christian teaching that's probably at odds with some of Romans if we really drill down and interpret it. Uh, even if we don't accept McKnight's interpretation, there's going to be things here that rub against it. So remember in this passage, what's Paul's purpose? Paul's purpose is to separate the idea that the law or Torah is a prerequisite for faithful Christian living. So Paul wants to uh, de-emphasize the law, de-emphasize the role that following the rules plays in accessing grace. Subsequent Christians did not have that same interest in mind. They wanted to emphasize the law and emphasize the law as a means to grace, as a proper way of accessing grace. So without having read that catechism, it wouldn't surprise me if this rubbed against that. So what you want to do, I think one of the things that's really important to do when we're studying scripture is try to let it be what it is in that passage. So that doesn't mean that we have no universal truths or that we can't say anything with any authority, quite the contrary. But what it does mean is we don't want to take any, any individual passage and just throw it away because it doesn't conform to doctrinal teaching. That's what gets us, I think, into trouble. So my guess is it probably does rub a little bit against what you learned. Um, and the goal of the catechism was very different from the goal of what Paul was doing here in Romans. I don't know if that helps, Eleanor. That's the best yep. answer I can give you. I never understood it anyway. <laughs> yeah, just let it go. Why did, why did God mm -hmm. create us to rebel against him? Mm -hmm. I mean, I know he wants us to, to love. Mm -hmm. That's the main thing. But he, I guess he could have created us to be robots. Mm -hmm. And so he did. He did not. He created us mm -hmm. to have a choice. Mm -hmm. And that's when sin entered in. That's mm -hmm. when the devil. <clears throat> yeah. So. Yeah. So could you guys hear Anne okay on the. On their, I heard her. Okay. Yeah. So I could hear you. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, the answer to that question, Anne, is. Who knows? I mean, it's a divine, I, I'm most comfortable calling that a divine mystery. I mean, some people think that all of this was allowed specifically so that Jesus could enter the world. I don't find that if you go beyond the statement of it, I don't find that to be a particularly satisfying uh, answer. Uh, what, what I think is the, what I'm most comfortable with saying is I don't know. And the reason that, uh, you get the stories you get, especially the second creation story in Genesis with Adam and Eve, is because nobody knew and they were trying to explain why we're so awful to each other. <laughs> and, and the best that anybody can explain is because we have this innate sinfulness. Why did God create us that way? Why did God create us that way? And now we don't know. Well, he didn't want us to be robots. So didn't want us to be robots, right? I mean, 
you know, slavery is not what God's after here. Um, but on the other hand, God's very much after transformation. So why not just transform us, you know, and that's the question. And that is not what God has chosen. So Ram, you had a question? Uh, yeah, verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells within me. That is in my flesh. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know how to, how to ask this. Would, what's in your flesh? Would you not have something good within your flesh mm -hmm. to then be able to, for instance, with doing what you're doing? Mm -hmm. I mean, you're, is it not what you're doing now, preaching, teaching in your flesh? Okay, so remember how Paul, this is again, now this is McKnight's hypothesis, but I, I think this one's pretty, pretty good. In Romans, flesh functions as this kind of cultural Jewish identity. Right. So flesh is tied to circumcision okay. and, and following the Torah. And so if you interpret it that way, for I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is in my flesh. There's nothing good being manifest by these kind of by my ethnic identity. I see. It's okay. not doing anything for me. OK, now, you know, the history of Christian interpretation of this passage is going to use flesh as a synonym for our humanity and spirit as a synonym for our soul. Um, I'm not sure about that. I it think that like, it seems like humanity would have something to bring to the table. Yeah, because it's, yeah. you know, it gets back to the point that Anne was making. We were created by God and in God's image. So there is an inherent value in us. Also, Paul points out that Gentiles were following Torah law before they knew what the Torah was. There were some Gentiles who just did it because they were good, right? Because that was what they did naturally. And so I, I think that this idea of flesh being tied to ethnicity is a good one. And I want to say again, as we talk about Jewishness and Judaism, I want to say again, this was within the context of the Roman church. These were folks who were trying to sort out what it means to be Christian. And if you came to Christianity from Judaism, you were going to have a very different answer than if you came from outside of the Jewish tradition. This is not a critique of Judaism. That's not what Paul's doing, and that's not what we're doing as Christians. And so when we talk about Torah and we talk about law and we talk about Judaism, we talk about it within the context of those already in the church. You know, I'm just very sensitive to how we talk about this, given our very poor history as Christians in relating to Jewish folks over the last, oh, I don't know, 1900 years or so. So uh, anyway, so I just I feel like it's a good time to clarify that. But if you read it as that way, so flesh is no privilege. McKnight's come back to that a bunch of times. Flesh is no privilege for the folks that are in the church. And again, if we extrapolate that out over uh, into modern times, right? You can imagine a conversation happening in a church and somebody wants to change something in the church, right? They want to, I mean, I always use, so they want to paint the sanctuary pink, okay? And so the person who wants to paint it pink uh, is a longtime member and the person who doesn't is a new member. And the longtime member might say to the new member, yeah, well, I'm a third generation Presbyterian. Trump card. Right. Paul's like, no, no, doesn't matter. Your flesh is no privilege. You can be a 10th generation member of First Presbyterian. Doesn't mean anything. You can be a Jewish Christian and it doesn't mean anything. Flesh doesn't matter. It doesn't convey privilege and inheritance 
and standing within a genealogical tradition doesn't convey privilege. Like that's the that's kind of the big argument, Eleanor. Why did we take the Christmas tree out? That was real. Right. Yeah, it, it's exactly like that, right? And it'd be like, I don't I wasn't here for that argument, but if if in that argument somebody was like, well, I've been here, my family's been in this church since 1874, right? Which that probably came up. I'm just guessing. <laughs> but right, like, but that's not that's not the card that Paul wants us to play in these conversations. And yet we do that kind of stuff perpetually because everybody's looking for a reason of why everybody should listen to them. It's the same idea. So that's, that, that to me is one of the most useful contributions that McKnight makes to our conversations about church today is getting away from this idea that we have some sort of privilege based on our physical standing. Like I'm more Christian than you kind of Because of my family, right? right. right? <laughs> you know? So uh, anyway, so like, you know, if we were going to do that in the, in this church, you would just put a few families in charge who've been around forever. And you'd be like, well, whatever you guys say, we'll do that. Like that was the same thing that was happening in the Roman church. It's like, well, we've been Jewish a long time. My parents were Jewish and my grandparents were Jewish and Jesus was Jewish. So you should listen to me and we should do it this way. And the Gentiles were like, but that doesn't sound right. I don't really want to get circumcised with no anesthetic. And Paul was like, they're right. You shouldn't have to get circumcised with no anesthetic. You know, you shouldn't have to have a real Christmas tree. It's the same argument, Eleanor. Anyway. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't want to walk too far into the real Christmas tree no, conversation. No. <laughs> um, anyway, questions on the screen at home? Okay, let's, let's go ahead and get into McKnight's interpretation. Um, we got about 17 minutes, but that's great. We'll get as far as we get. So the character Paul creates here, remember, McKnight's hypothesis is that he's writing as the judge, does not proceed step by step, but instead weaves terms together so that Torah, commandment, sin, flesh, and I become a seamless cloth that exhibits the divine purpose of the Torah. McKnight does not pretend to have resolved this most difficult of passages in Romans, but he has some observations to make. So his argument here is that all that language is being weaved together into a bigger picture um, that shows the purpose of Torah, but also the shortcomings. So let's get to those. Observations. First, the judge knows he would never have sin, known sin without the Torah. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, right? This is what we talked about a couple of weeks ago with this idea of covetousness. Uh, I drew that obviously from this passage um, that, you know, once you start thinking about it, it's the same, same principle. Your mom says, keep your hand out of the cookie jar. What do you think about? <laughs> the cookie jar. As soon as I tell you, don't eat the cookies. What do you think about? You think about the cookies. It, it is universal. It is wired into us to, to, to have rules lead us to thinking about not breaking the rules. Right? So anyway, second, the Torah's commandment and sin become a mutually reinforcing machine, strong language there, to bring death to the judge who wants to follow the Torah, but when the commandment came, sin revived. So what he means there is the Torah says, do not covet. Then you think about coveting. Then you think about, oh, but the Torah says, do not covet. Ah, uh, then you think, but I'm coveting more. And it becomes self-perpetuating, and you become kind of swallowed up 
into this issue that you're having with whatever rule it is that you feel like you're breaking or want to break, where it becomes like this machine that's spinning within you faster and faster and faster. And you want to do that thing, the more you think about not doing that thing. As soon as the thought enters into your head, it becomes a conflict. Third, though sin was sin before Torah's arrival with Moses, it was not until the Torah that sin was seen for what it was. It was sin working death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be in and through the commandment might become sinful beyond and, th and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. The problem is not the Torah. The problem is the judge wants the Torah to do what it cannot, which is to transform. Telling somebody they can't do something doesn't fundamentally change them. This we know, right? This we know. Telling somebody they can't do something doesn't fundamentally change them. Saying stay out of the cookie jar does not over time lead you to hating cookies. It leads you to want the cookies even more by being told you can't do it. So it's the same kind of conversation we're having culturally right now. You see this played out all the time about like, what sort of rules should we establish about our speech and our language and how we talk about other people? None of those rules can transform the fundamental problem. That doesn't mean we should live in a society with no rules. Like it's a good rule that we have that you can't murder people. Like I'm in favor of that rule. And, you know, I understand that that rule does not make people not want to murder people who are intent in that. But if it deters some of them, I'm for it, right? But on the other hand, it means that rules can only go so far. They don't have the power to transform. They don't. And so this is the problem. So you can have all the Torah you want to, but if the purpose of the gospel is transformation, it's going to fail. It's going to fail. Questions or comments about that? It okay. seems like the okay. immediate consequences would be the uh, deterrent, but then you throw in this forgiveness thing, which is uh -huh. not really a consequence. So, uh -huh. I, you know, if I if the cookie jar is there and I, you know, eat a whole bunch of cookies and get sick. Mm -hmm. that's a, you know, a deterrent, but, you know, if mom says that's okay, let me give you something for your tummy. Don't worry about it. Then, you know, I might go back and have more cookies later. Right. And, and it, it just creates a cycle. Right. And so forgiveness and grace that we try to live out. That's why, as long as you tie forgiveness and grace to the law, you're going to create the perpetual cycle that you have. Paul doesn't think that people should just be allowed to behave without consequence. We get to this in, in 1 Corinthians. He, he believes there should be consequences if the behavior of people will taint the community. That's the key. So if the behavior of people will taint the community, then Paul believes that there should be significant repercussions. But this idea of grace that comes from us, it's not about the person that has wronged us. It's about us. So in your analogy, Ken, if, if you think about your mother, what type of parent does she want to be? There's a couple different pathways that she can choose there. She finds that you've caught, she's caught you uh, eating too many cookies and your stomach hurts. She can call you stupid and say, you're an idiot. You should have known that those cookies would make you sick. She can hit you and say, I told you to stay out of those cookies. She can say, you liked those cookies? Well, here, I'm going to give you more. And you're going to sit here and eat all the cookies in the cookie jar. 
Or she can say, you know what, honey, that was a mistake. And I'm going to give you some celery. I don't know. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and I'm, and I'm going to give you a hug. And I'm going to say, I asked you to stay out of the cookies because I knew it would make you sick. And I love you. And I'm worried about you. And then why don't you go, why don't I take your iPad for 30 minutes and then you can get back to your life? What sort of parent do you want to be? It's not about being wronged by the child. It's about what sort of parent you want to be. Forgiveness for us as Christians is about what sort of people we want to be, not about what we want to change in the other person, because we have to understand we can't change the other person. Who's tried that before, right? Goes really well, usually, when I try to change other people, not very good at it. Uh, so we, we recognize our own limitations. So when you talk about grace and forgiveness, what we're doing, again, is we're bringing into the current world our hopes. That's what we're doing. We're not necessarily trying to uh, change the behavior of the other person. We're trying to live into the person we feel called to be. So uh, unless what that person is doing has significant consequences in our lives or in the lives of another person, we try to try to prevent that. Well, we are called, though, to bring Christ's love. Yes. So that will change them. Yeah. So we are called to change them by bringing Christ's love. Yeah, and witnessing to that with our life, right? Yeah. Like, that's the most compelling story we can tell about Jesus is our own lives. And so that's what we're bringing. And so if we believe Christ brings grace, if the primary manifestation of God's love through Jesus Christ in our life is grace, then that's the primary thing we can bring into the lives of others is that same grace. That's the best thing. Doesn't mean we turn into doormats. It's very complicated and very hard, but Paul's not letting us off the hook just because it's hard. I mean, he's, he's the whole New Testament pushes us in this direction. Greg, you had a question, comment? Too many. Well, <laughs> uh, using that same analogy with the kid in the cookie jar. So what if the kid just realizes that stealing a couple of cookies is okay if I only have to eat a couple pieces of celery? Mm -hmm. And then at what point does the person teaching have mm -hmm. to increase that mm -hmm. level of punishment mm -hmm. for this person to go, well, maybe I don't want to do that. Or is it your job to tell that? You know, I guess I'm kind of understanding because we manipulate the mm -hmm. system we do mm -hmm. as a mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. We kind of say, this isn't that bad. Right. Because I really only get this as a result. So it's not that bad. Yeah. Seems like there's a balance there. Yeah. I mean, there's a balance. I mean, you know, again, I want to be very careful not to create doormats. That's not what Jesus was trying to do. But on the other hand, uh, I think there's a there there needs to be a basic level of understanding about the world that we're dealing with, and the world that we're dealing with is one that is very much beyond our control and the scope of our influence, and so we can only do so much. And the more we try to transform the behavior of another person, the more the conflict arises between us and that person. So in your cookie jar scenario. If, you know, Sophie's like, whatever, that was worth it. I'm having more cookies. Well, then eventually you just stop buying cookies, <laughs> right? I mean, but you don't ever get to the point where grace is not your response. Grace does not imply that you just say, oh, okay, honey, don't worry about it. But it does imply that Sophie, this is the key part, never understands her behavior to have separated her from your love right? That's the fundamental nature of grace. 
that we, as followers of Jesus, understand that our behavior does not fundamentally separate us from the love of God because Christ stands in the breach. And so how do we want to respond to that? Ideally, we want to respond to that by giving back the love and grace that we have received. That, that's how we should want to respond to that. And most likely, most likely, if you repeat that process with Sophie and over and over, she's going to say, I don't want to do that. I, I know this is going to hurt my dad. I don't want to do that. And then she's changed. But it's, it's long. It's bumpy. It's frustrating. But it's a value. Right? That's the value. And the, uh, that, that last sentence, the judge wants the Torah to do what it cannot, which is to transform. It can't do it. You have to understand setting rules and restrictions on other people can affect their behavior, but it can't change them. And we're in the change business. God's in the change business, not the restriction business. But the problem is that I, I'm really struggling because I, I went to a Passover celebration last night yeah. for five hours. Uh-huh. <laughs> Did you have the horseradish? So, yes. Yeah. All of it. Uh-huh. And a whole booklet of reading yeah. and sharing. And it yeah. was a wonderful event. Uh-huh. But I mean, I it is ironic that at the end of 10 weeks of this, I can go to that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not ironic, but kind of mind-boggling. But this, I mean, isn't that what you just said? Is that not the essence of all of this? Yeah. This idea of transformation. Mm -hmm. But does, until I reread the whole book, if I do, I mean, it's going to be like, I, I, does McKnight go too far? I, I think he might. There may be some places where he goes too far, but I would rather go too far this right. way than the other way. But it's almost like if, if it's, it's, pretty minimizing of the Torah. Oh, yeah. Within the Christian community, yes. Yes. Jewish people, I don't want to hurt you. Well, no. Jewish people <laughs> don't believe Jesus was the Messiah. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> right? Jewish people today don't believe Jesus was the Messiah. So for them, they are functioning in a different structure right. than we're functioning in. Yes. So that's why... It's what I felt. Like right. I yeah. Think. Yeah. Yeah. And so... Um, like I lived next door to uh, a conservative. So this is the middle road Jewish family. So there's, there's reform conservative and Orthodox. And we live next door to some conservative Jewish folks in, uh, in, in Indianapolis when we were there. And uh, so they couldn't use electricity on the Sabbath, right? No electricity on the Sabbath. So uh, what they did when they lived in New York is they would pay Gentiles to come and turn things on for them. Because it was the act of flipping the switch that was breaking Torah. So like in a lot of Jewish buildings, there would be a Gentile elevator operator on the Torah who would be in the elevator on the Torah so that he could push the buttons and they didn't have to and thereby follow the law. Right. It's, it's a different building. It's a different house. So I think it's important for us today. And it, that structure really it, it works pretty well for people that are Jewish. They, that structure that or organizes the world for them, it works really well for them, but it's a different house. And so Paul's talking about what's happening in our house and how we deal as well. If you do believe Jesus is the Messiah, then your relationship with Torah and law should be fundamentally different. 
So you can still look from the outside in at the Jewish faith and see a lot of beauty in it and see truth in it and see grace in it, but it's not our house. I mean, that's, that's like the best hypocrisy in it too. Sure. Absolutely. And there's, I mean, we pedal in that all the time, right, Ken? I mean, we're... <laughs> well, yeah, but we don't want to be self-righteous about it, pay people to sin for us. Right. Maybe. But yeah, I mean, no, that's right. We don't want to, because, I mean, that's when, that's legalism, right? I mean, that, that gets us bogged down into the idea of the law for the sake of the law. So my friend, uh, Zev, uh, his his worry and concern was about the letter of the law, not the spirit of the law. Connie, you have your hand up. Yeah, I, this may sound really stupid, but it goes along with what you're talking about. How is pushing a button more sinful than turning a doorknob? Yeah, it's the electrical charge. Okay. That's the answer, because I asked the same question, Connie, so it was not stupid, <laughs> or we're both stupid. Okay. <laughs> but it's the electrical charge that breaks the Sabbath. But they didn't have electricity when the Torah was True. written. So they've had to interpret that because technically speaking, on the most technical level, you are making someone else work on the Sabbath when you, right. try, when you activate the electricity. Now, you're also okay. making the Gentile work. But you know for a fact that they're Gentiles and not Jews, so it doesn't matter. But you may be work, making a Jewish person work on the Sabbath. Oh. by using electricity it's challenging <laughs> a lot of words can just interpret that what that's the most conservative no the you, we can go beyond that we can go to orthodox yeah. and they're even more conservative than the conservatives but like so you know zev and sharon would walk to synagogue on saturdays which was about a two-mile walk which is by its nature more work than driving but it's based on the principle that you don't let you don't make your animals work on the Sabbath from the old time. So they applied that today. It's just like they have the same challenges of trying to incorporate the modern world into an ancient belief system that we do. So anyway, uh, we just have a couple minutes left. And by a couple, I mean two. Uh, so I'm going to jam through the rest of this. This has been a really good conversation today, you guys. Sadly, this is one of the days I have to preach outside. Otherwise, we could go to like 11, which I'm sure would be exciting. So let's look at these other observations really quickly. Paul shifts and blames sin for what the Torah accomplishes for those who want to find Christoformity by its observance. The judges of the flesh sold into slavery under, under sin, so much so that the judge can't seem to obey the Torah because sin in him provokes the Torah to reveal sin and tempt him to, to sin. We've talked about this. This is the cookie jar. It is not just sin at work, but something in the judge himself. And his admission is astounding. But in fact, it is no longer I that do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within my flesh. This is Ram's question. He says it more forcefully in 720. It is no longer I that do it, but the sin that dwells within me. Sin lives within the judge. And the Torah, per Paul's argument, has let it in. Because when you weave sin into your religious worldview, then it takes a new uh, it embodies itself in a new way within you. Again, I feel like we've kind of covered this. Final observation six, the judge not only points this finger at sin, but he has become an embodied slave to sin as a tyrant. Sin, this is capital S, sin is a tyrant in his life. I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He calls this the body of death. 
It is nothing short of shocking for Paul to tie Torah so closely to the ultimate tyrant, death. Death is at work in all those who seek Christoformity through Torah observance. And then finally, the embodied slavery to sin is life in the flesh. So then with my mind, I'm a slave to the law of God. With my flesh, I'm a slave to the law of sin. The Torah becomes an instrument of death because of sin and flesh. So uh, this duality that Paul talks about, uh, I'm a slave in my mind to the law of God, but with my flesh, I'm a slave to the law of sin. Again, this is the cookie jar. This is it. In my mind, I'm thinking to myself, don't take a cookie, even as my hand is like reaching and saying to my mind, but it'll taste so good. Don't do it, but it'll taste so good. So that's it. So your mind is trying to get your hand, your member, to do the right thing, and then there's war, and you're a slave to both things. Either way, in that scenario, either way, you're miserable. Because if you give into your mind and into the law, you just sit there thinking, man, I want a cookie. I want a cookie. If, on the other hand, you give in and you reach in and you grab another cookie, then you just sit there and you think, I'm an awful person. I'm an awful person. I have no control. So, the way Paul frames it is because of this war within you, because of this war that you have going on inside you, you put yourself essentially in a no-win situ situation which perpetuates misery, and that is death. It's death. So what's win? Win's grace. I know, but half my cookie jar. The cookie jar becomes irrelevant, right? So the idea is that Jesus obliterates the very war. The war no longer exists. I'm going to eat a cookie from time to time. Is that going to separate me from the love of God? No. In fact, I'm going to experience God's grace every time that happens. Does that mean I sin more? No. In fact, what it does is it changes my relationship to the cookies because I see those as something that is a barrier between me and my relationship with God. And I don't want that. I'm happier. I'm happier the more I'm living in the grace and love of Jesus Christ. Clara? I was just going to say, my mother-in-law had a cupboard that she had a key to, and mm -hmm. she locked all the cookies mm -hmm. and all the snacks yeah. in that cupboard. What kind of mother was she? <laughs> well, you'll have to reconcile that within yourself, Clara. But it's a, it's a strategy that pretty good. all of us have used. <laughs> I think she was pretty good. Okay, you guys, I'm sorry I have to stop um, and go do, uh, do church. Yes, sir? Paul, in chapter 8, he goes into what you just mm -hmm. said. There's no condemnation for right. those who are in Christ. Right. Christ. Remember, he's it. yeah, he does. And, and that's what he, he's talking to the Gentile Christian there, right? Because they've been sitting there the whole time being condemned. You're eating idol meat. You're not circumcised. You're working in your shop on the Sabbath. How much can you love Jesus? How can you do these things? Remember chapter 1? Remember the list in chapter 1? All those condemnations? Those were aimed at the Gentile Christians from the Jewish Christians within the churches. And so then finally, after all of this in Romans 8, Paul says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then Romans 8 culminates with that idea that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. And then later on, remember, he builds it back to that idea. What is the primary manifestation of the grace that we have received in Christ within your body? It's welcome right? It's hospitality. Do you remember that from way back at the beginning, this idea of welcome and hospitality is the most important manifestation of our beliefs? For that church, there was nothing more valuable to them than that idea of welcome and hospitality. 
that was the most powerful thing they had to manifest God's grace, not condemnation. So that welcome and hospitality that's talked about later, if you think about it, speaks directly against that list in Romans 1, which is why we don't want to lift Romans 1 out of context and act like it is something that it's not. It's actually a bad list, not just bad behaviors, but a bad list because it's trying to tell people that through their behavior, they've separated themselves. Okay, that's it. We got to stop. I got to go preach a sermon. If you have questions, uh, holler at me. Good job, everybody. Fried chicken.